Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29, the mercy of God. And so if you found your places, or if you're following along behind me, this is God's holy and errant word, starting in verse 1. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men where they have come shelter, come under, sh under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hand and brought lot into the house and with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they, were, they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. And morning dawned and the, angel urged, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And they brought them out and said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew underground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. My wife and I were away last week, but very much enjoying being back home with our family uh, and worshiping with you all. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today where we are looking at certain aspects of God. This is what the theologians would call His attributes. And the reason that we're doing that is because there is nothing more practical in life, this is not original with me, but there is nothing more practical in life than knowing who God is and knowing what He's like. And whenever you find yourself responding to life in an unhealthy way, whenever you, let's say, are inordinately angry, not angry with inside normal bounds, but when your anger is too much, when you are enraged, when you're bitter, when your anger doesn't end, it just sort of hangs on, when it's inordinate, or when you are inordinately fearful or anxious or depressed, arrogant, whatever, whenever your response to life is outside the normal boundaries, you can always trace the root of that back to having forgotten what you know about God or not having known it in the first place. So if you want to live well in this world, you have to keep coming back to who God is as He reveals Himself to us. And that's the purpose of Scripture. The Bible is not trying to give you an impersonal, autonomous moral code, a list of do's and don'ts for you so that you can now become a decent human being. Scripture is primarily a guide first to knowing God, to seeing what He's like, to seeing how He thinks, what he feels, what's important to him, and it lets you know that so that you can then know him and be known by him so that you can then live well in his world. Scripture has an awful lot to say about how to live in this world, but only after you've first connected with the one who made the world. So if you walk away from Scripture and you feel like, you know, it's given you good things to think about or it's given you a list of things to try doing, but it has not increased your desire to be with God, hasn't drawn you closer to Him, hasn't moved you to rely on Him to do the things that please Him, if you, say, have treated the Scripture like a philosophy textbook, something that you can read, assimilate, without actually having a personal connection, a conversation with the author, then you're missing the point. Scripture is trying to show you things about God so that you move toward Him, and as you move toward Him, as your life lines up with Him, with how He lives His life, you then are living in line with Him. Forget what you learn about Him, and your life will not line up with His. You'll find yourself struggling then to live well in His world. That's the thesis that we're working with this fall. Now, for today, we're looking at an aspect of Him that we would call an aspect of His justice that not only does He give us instructions for how to live well with Him, but that He judges us in accordance with what He said. We're going to look at this today in three different ways. First, we're going to see that there is judgment, that God judges. Second, 
that the pull of the world, the effect of this world on you is toward judgment. And then third, we'll see that there is more than judgment. Three things this morning, that there is judgment, that the pull of the world is toward judgment, and that there's more than judgment. Let's dive in. I want to start point one by saying what I am not planning to do. I'm not going to try to defend God. We come to passages like Genesis 19 that talk about God raining down sulfur and fire, overthrowing multiple cities so that nothing is left. And as modern people living in the Philadelphia suburbs, we can, we can tend to cringe. We think about how our friends might read this passage, how they might think it's barbaric, uncivilized, beneath our modern notions of what is right and humane. And then we're afraid they would judge God as barbaric, or at least they would judge this passage. And so with that in the back of our heads, we can tend to feel a little defensive as we come to passages like Genesis 19. Like, you know, it's up to us to apologize for what's here and, and feel like, you know, maybe somehow we have to defend God to make this a little bit more palatable for modern tastes. I'm not going to do that this morning. God needs no defense for what He chooses to do in His universe. And he certainly does not need a defense from me. All you have to do is read the Gospels and realize that God stands by what he did here. Jesus talks about this event. When he described what it was going to be like when he comes back in the book of Luke, Luke 17, 28, Jesus reached back into Genesis 19 and he said, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. If Jesus, the friend of sinners, who pardoned tax collectors and prostitutes and anyone else who wanted to be forgiven, if Jesus was not afraid to reference God's judgment, you and I can't be either. So I'm not going to apologize for God this morning. If you want to live well in this world, you cannot forget that God judges. You cannot forget that you live in a moral universe determined by His morality and that there is judgment from Him with respect to His morality. That's what I'm not going to do today. What I do want to do this morning, however, is show that God's judgment is credible, that it's not embarrassing that at the end of the day you may not like it, it might not fit in with your personal sensibilities, but it's not illogical. God's not driven by some incomprehensible rage. So let me suggest four things for you to keep in mind when you come across passages like this in Scripture, and as you read the Bible, you realize there's a lot of them. Let me suggest four things. First, you need to realize that everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone's sense is different, but no one believes that anything goes. Everyone has some curb on what you're allowed to do with other people. There are things that you are not allowed to do with impunity. Everybody believes that. You have to be, everybody believes that you have to respect people in certain ways, which means that you can't do anything that you want because some things are just wrong. And I want to stress here that people won't say that they feel something is wrong. For instance, that they feel 
rape and murder and incest, that, that, that those things just feel wrong, that it offends their personal preference of how they would like people to be treated, but they understand that this is merely their feeling about those things. Nobody says that. What they say is that it is wrong. Some things are objectively wrong to do to other people. They might not have a justification for why they think those things are objectively wrong, but everyone believes that there are some things that are just flat-out wrong. And everyone has a sense of what has to happen if someone violates another person in any of those wrong ways. In other words, everyone has a sense of justice, a sense that something must be done in order to set right things that are wrong. And again, notice, as you listen to people, it's not that something could be done, but that something has to be done, that there is a moral imperative to get rid of what they see as evil so that you can move things closer to what they really ought to be. That's the first thing to keep in the back of your mind when you come to these passages, that everyone has a sense of justice, including people who don't like God, what God when he judges on the basis of his sense of justice. Second thing to keep in mind, God's measuring stick is perfection. God judges for every deviation from what is perfect. For every deviation from what would be the perfect way of treating yourself, treating other people, or treating the world that he's made. He judges for every time someone doesn't treat themselves, this world, or someone else with perfect respect, perfect dignity, perfect care, perfect love, perfect justice. He judges for every time that we mistreat a human being, ourselves included, by doing something that is not in that person's absolute best interests. You think, well, why, why is that? Why every deviation? Think in geometric terms here. What happens when two infinite lines cross, when they intersect? What happens is that their endpoints end up infinitely far away from each other. So regardless of how small that angle is between those two lines, the endpoints never meet. It's very similar here. Once you're conceived, your soul now lives forever. You're not infinite. You don't own the source of your own life. Your life, however, is a gift to you from God that He doesn't take back. And in that sense, you will live eternally. There's an afterlife for every human being. So if you set yourself on a trajectory that believes you don't have to be exactly in step with where God is in the way that you treat other people, a trajectory that says some deviation from Him is acceptable, then even if that deviation is a little bit out of step, over an eternal amount of time, you will end up somewhere where He isn't. You'll end up infinitely far away from Him, creating a world that is infinitely at odds with the one that He creates. Now, since he is the definition of what's truly good, then any deviation, even those that are small in seed form, will eventually flower into something that's not good. And since God's goal is a purely good universe, as Pastor Nick was saying earlier, one where everyone seeks what is in everyone else's best interests all the time, since that's God's goal, he judges every deviation from goodness that would destroy that goodness. He judges it to remove it so that only goodness and the right treatment of other beings remains. You have to keep that in mind when you come to these passages. 
God judges like every moral being does, and he judges according to what is perfect. Third, God delays his judgment. Part of what God thinks is in the best interests of other people is to be patient with us. But it's a patience, I'm going to say this clumsily, it's a patience that is not unlimited. If God were endlessly patient, we would be endlessly away from him, which means that we would be endlessly destructive to others. And so God is not endlessly patient. There's a limit. There is judgment. But judgment is not immediate each and every time we deviate from what he thinks is right and best. If it was immediate, none of us would be here this morning. God believes that a universe populated with human beings, little images of himself, he believes that's what's best. And so he's patient. He holds back his final judgment. And yet, fourth, there are times when his judgment breaks into this world. Times that remind you that because justice is an attribute of God, there is real judgment. God really judges. That's what you see happening in Genesis 19. God has decided not to wait until the day of judgment to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He told Abraham in chapter 18:20 that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and that their sin is very grave, that people are being mistreated, crying out, and that it's so bad that he has decided to bring a piece of that future judgment into the present moment and eliminate the non-goodness that he sees there. There are a number of times that you see that in Scripture. The plagues that God sent on Egypt, the destruction of the Canaanites, later the destruction of the Amalekites. You see his judgment on nations as a whole. And you also see it on individuals, on Achan, whose greed put the Israelites in danger, on Uzzah, who wrongly reached out and touched the holy ark of God, on King Uzziah, who arrogantly tried to take on the duties of a priest as well as a king. You could keep on going with the list. They are instances of present judgment that give you a foretaste of what's coming. Now, caveat, the book of Job, which we looked at a little bit earlier, the book of Job does teach us that we have to be careful here, to realize that our understanding of these things is very limited. And so we can never say to a person or to a group of people that this bad thing happened, happened to you, happened to these people, because of the bad things that you or they were doing. We can't say that. Not all instances of suffering in this world are a direct result of specific sin. And yet the that doesn't erase what I've been saying, that there are times when God judges now based on the ways that we've mistreated ourselves, others, or his world. He is a God who's patient, very gracious, and he's a just God who judges justly, who sometimes allows a taste of that future judgment to break into this world. That's point one, there is judgment. Point two, the pull of this world is toward judgment. We need to back up for a moment and remember who Lot is. Lot is related to Abraham. Abraham is his uncle. And when Abraham listened to God, came out of Ur of the Chaldees, Genesis chapter 12, Lot came with him. But Lot didn't stay with him, Genesis 13. He and Abraham had so many flocks and herds that the land could not support them while they stayed together. It was a struggle to make the available resources go all the way around. Their herders started to quarrel with each other. And so Abraham gave Lot his choice. 
Whichever way Lot went, Abraham would go the other way. Lot looked over toward Sodom and Gomorrah, saw that the land was well watered, that it reminded him of what the Garden of Eden must have been like. And he chose to go in that direction. He pitched his tent outside of Sodom, even though it was very clear at the time, Genesis 13, 13, that the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. So why is Lot there? It's not because he looks at Sodom and thinks, oh man, <laughs> that's where immorality lives, and that's what I've been longing for. I can't wait to dive in. He doesn't think that. He isn't drawn to Sodom because he wants to live a life of debauchery. That's not why he left Ur and came to this land with his uncle. He's not drawn to Sodom for the sin. He's drawn to Sodom because he's tired. Tired of struggling in the wilderness. Tired of never having enough. Tired of the fighting, the strife between his herdsmen and Abraham. He's tired of wandering. Just wants to settle down. So when he sees how rich and abundant the area around Sodom is, he moves toward it. He's ready to live a little, kick back, enjoy the good life. He moved his tent outside the city. It's not too long, however, Genesis 14, that we learn that he moved into the city. Here in Genesis 19, we learn that he's become a leading citizen of the city. He's one of its leaders. Verse 1, he sits in the gateway. That's effectively telling you that he's now an elder in the city. In other words, Lot did not set out one day and say to himself, let me see, what's the best way to put myself in imminent danger of judgment? It's not what he was thinking. But over time, he became increasingly comfortable with what was going on in Sodom, with the culture, with the lifestyle, comfortable enough that he was willing to settle down among the people there. He became comfortable with what should have made him uncomfortable. And he did that with things that would have been incredibly obvious to him. You go back to Genesis 19.4. Lot has brought the two angels into his home, the two messengers from God, and we're told before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. There's no question there about how widespread the culture of Sodom was, about how pervasive that culture was. Both young and old, all the people, to the last man. This is not the work of one or two disaffected persons, some smaller marginalized subset of the city. Instead, the cultural norms of Sodom ran throughout its population. And there's no question what those cultural norms were. No question as to what the city valued and approved. These men, young and old, to the last man, had established their own sexual ethic outside of the one that God thought was best for humanity. They did not believe that you had to limit sexual activity to one man and one woman who had covenanted together in marriage. And they didn't believe that sexual activity had to be consensual. But they felt comfortable demanding to use these men for their sexual pleasure. And if thwarted, their culture informed them that it was in bounds, it was acceptable, to use violence to get what they wanted. That this was something that they could do that evening, go home with their families, 
and be fine the next day. And so they threatened Lot, verse 9, that we will deal worse with you than with them, and they drew near to break the door down. This is not the work of a small criminal element bent on disrupting an otherwise good social order. This was the social order, the culture of the day. It was a world that glorified sexuality outside of God's intent and that promoted a world in which the strong prey on the weak and do whatever their power lets them get away with. This was a culture that did not line up with God and the way that He lives His life or with the way that He commands images of His to live theirs. Now, with as ugly as all this is and with as, it as pervasive as it is, do you really think that this is the first time that this is coming to Lot's attention? That up to this moment, he had no idea that the culture of his city was shot through with these values. Does it make sense to think that he could rise to a position of prominence sitting in the gateway without knowing what the town was like? He realized, of course not. But that means then that his progression toward the city was not merely geographical. It was not merely external. His progression was also internal. He went from living in the tents of the righteous to being at home among the wicked. It's a progression that doesn't happen overnight, right? There ha there's a, a way of making peace with your conscience, a way of putting your discomfort, your moral scruples to sleep, a way of becoming deaf and blind to what's going on all around you so that, what? So that you can be where you are so that you can be where you want to be, doing what you want to do. There's a way of compromising with the world as it moves further and further away from the life that God lives. And when you forget that God does judge, sometimes now, definitely in the future, when you forget that, then compromise with this world makes sense because it leads to giving you an easier, what you think is an easier or a better life. Lot made enough peace with his own conscience to live at peace among people whose way of life made war on God and made war on how God tells us to live with each other. The people living in Sodom had one worldview, one way of treating themselves and others. God has another. And when the two strangers, the angels, show up in town, those two worldviews are about to collide. But because of the decisions that Lot has made, he's left with no good way to respond when that happens. He can't do what the townspeople ask him to do, sacrifice the angels to save himself. That is not how God lives. It would not be in the angels' best interest. Lot can't do that. So then what? He offers them his daughters? How is that any better? It's not. The worst part about this, he has no good way to respond. The worst part is that he's created this problem for himself. He was drawn away by his own desires to compromise with the culture around him, and now he's stuck. He can't give in to the city's demands. It puts him in, in a physically dangerous bind. He compromises even more to try to get himself out of it. By making peace with his conscience, he's lost his ability to respond well to a world that has set itself against God and against His ways of living. And as you read the rest of Scripture, you realize this is always a challenge for God's people. It's a challenge for you and for me. Because whether you read the Old Testament or the New, you realize that God's people 
are constantly tempted to drift away from God. It's constantly tempted to add angles of deviation from his lifeline to ours. We're tempted to be pulled away by our own desires to assimilate, to make peace with whatever the surrounding culture values. So whether you read the history of the judges, the kings, the prophets, the New Testament church, you find that there's this constant tug that God's people feel to move closer and closer to whatever their societal culture values. And that pull toward believing what the world believes, approving what the world approves, is just part of our normal life as God's people. It's what you and I need to expect. Jesus in John 17 was very clear. He's praying to God for his disciples. Verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, God's plan has always been that his people would be left in the world, but that we, we would not be of the world, that we would live here among the rest of the world's population but that we would not embrace the values that are out of line with how God calls us to live. That means if you're comfortable with God, if there's no angle of deviation between your lifeline and His, you will not feel totally comfortable with your society. You won't feel totally comfortable with any human society. The reverse is also true. If you are at home here, if you feel comfortable among people who don't love and honor the Lord, you will not feel comfortable when you read Scripture and you hear what God has to say or with how He calls us to live. And so the temptation is always there, lifelong for you and me to compromise. The only difference between us and Lot is that we don't have to go anywhere to encounter it. You don't have to move your tent to get closer to your society. You live in the middle of your society. You can't avoid it, and you can't avoid its values. Sally and I watched a movie the other day. We just wanted to unplug a bit, so we streamed a PG-13. And in the space of an hour and 58 minutes, we were treated explicitly to a couple different gender-crossing kinds of things, children defining their own identities, the strong endorsement that any expression of intimacy is good, and a full-out attack on the goodness of God for allowing suffering in the world. It was amazing to unpack that together the next day and just start realizing how many direct challenges there were to a God-centered world in that movie and to realize how strongly those challenges were pushed. And we didn't have to go anywhere. Those challenges came to us. You want to be a little bit more, more accurate, we invited them to come to us. And the temptation is what? You watch a movie like that, and the temptation is to you know, say it's not that big a deal, to just go along with that. Or maybe you don't get there overnight, but certainly over time, the temptation is to become more and more comfortable with what should make us extremely uncomfortable. The temptation to compromise what God values in favor of what our world does. Dr. Kevin DeYoung is both a pastor and an associate professor of systematic theology. He regularly writes at a, a very popular level. He recently put out a very short article entitled, From Silence to Complexification to Capitulation. 
from silence to complexification to capitulation, where he outlines the process by which compromise takes place. He writes, quote, rarely do evangelical leaders and institutions leap all at once from the open celebration and defense of orthodoxy to the open celebration and defense of what they once believed was heterodoxy, unquote. What is he saying there? He's saying the same thing that we see with Lot, that God's people don't jump from one position to another, from one set of beliefs to the opposite set of beliefs, from one worldview to another. Rather, as DeYoung puts it, they move by a series of steps, and he lists out a number. I'll give you just several. At first, he says, there's silence. Where you used to believe and talk about something as being openly wrong, when you start the slide toward compromise, you just stop talking about it altogether. You don't promote the wrong yet, but you stop openly, openly acknowledging it. You act as if it doesn't exist. You start with silence. Later, however, you shift your focus. You actively talk and focus your energy onto something else that allows you to downplay this other issue as being less important. And, and so you're able to think, well, it's, it's relatively minor in the face of this more important issue, really something that's not worth discussing because this other thing that is so much more important is just sucking up, absorbing all the oxygen in the room. At some point, however, that strategy is not enough because as you read Scripture, you still come face to face with what God believes, that the issue is still wrong. And so then you have to start prioritizing parts of Scripture over others. You argue for some sections of Scripture as being culturally out of date. They're, they're, they're no longer relevant, or they're no longer as relevant as other parts of Scripture. And so you don't use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Instead, you use Scripture to fight Scripture so that you can cut out some passages that otherwise are, are really super clear. And then toward the end of the process, you jettison Scripture altogether, at least on this issue. As DeYoung puts it, quote, the public debate at this point is not really about Scripture. The discussion is focused on friends we know, people we've talked to. We often hear of how traumatized, to the point of possible self-harm, people are in our midst and how the orthodox position and orthodox churches are to blame, unquote. I think that's incredibly insightful at least in my experience in talking with people, it's not that they're really confused about what Scripture says, but the source of authority shifts from what our God thinks to what our friends and our relatives think. And those thoughts, those beliefs, those experiences outweigh for us God's thoughts and beliefs and experiences. And so we listen to those stories, we retell those stories as reasons for why we relegate Scripture to a lower position, a place where we can discount it and the God who gave it to us. Now, DeYoung here is writing specifically about a slide that a number of evangelical individuals and institutions have made with respect to the LGBTQ plus issues. But I think his analysis, his steps that people make as they compromise are applicable to many more issues than just this one. They apply to the full range of topics that we are tempted to move away from God on as we move closer to our culture and its ways of thinking. If you walk that road, if you stay silent about things that God says are wrong because 
Our society doesn't want to hear that. If you shift your focus to things that our world is happy to hear about, if you cut out parts of Scripture that you find uncomfortable, and then if you eliminate Scripture altogether in favor of personal stories, if you walk that road, you'll end up with Lot sitting in the gateway of Sodom, and you'll have no way to respond when you need to. And when the worldviews clash, you'll be overwhelmed. Lot's a man who knows what that's like. He put himself and his family in physical danger, lost all of his possessions. He had so many flocks and herds they competed with Abraham's, now he has nothing. His wife lost her life, verse 26. She joins the cities in their judgment because she can't stand the thought of leaving them. His daughters lost their morality. We didn't read the next passage, verses 30 to 38. But they end up all alone with Lot, with no other men around, so they decide to get him drunk and sleep with him so that he fathers his own grandchildren. Lot took his family to live in Sodom, and Sodom ended up living in his family. And this man has made absolutely no positive impact on his world. No one listens to him. Not the townspeople, not his sons-in-law. He leaves no positive legacy anywhere because he gave in one small step at a time because it was easier than holding on to God and His ways. That means if you want to stay faithful to God, if you want to avoid this kind of compromise while you live in this world, you can't just drift along with your culture. You can't let yourself become comfortable living here. Instead, you have to work. You have to know what God says. You have to understand why He says it. You have to hold on to Him when He says it. And that's not going to come easily. You're going to have to study Scripture personally. You're going to have to study it a lot. You're going to have to surround yourself with a community that actively wrestles through Scripture, a community that takes it seriously, a community that wants to know God and wants to know what is it that matters to Him. You're going to need friends who care about you and about how you're engaging the larger world. That means it matters who you're spending time listening to, who you are allowing to impact you, who you're being taught by. If you drink in more news than Scripture, more social and political commentary than Scripture, more entertainment than Scripture, then you should not be surprised when you're suddenly hit by a moral quandary that you don't feel equipped to deal with. Let me talk for a moment to parents, to moms and dads specifically. In the same way, who your kids listen to matters. The school that you send them to matters. What their teachers teach them matters. Who their friends are matters. I know I'm stepping on toes here, but what we're talking about is too important not to. It matters. For your children's sake, it matters. You cannot send your kids to daycare or to a school that's invested in the world's values for 20, 30, 40 hours a week, involve your kids in multiple extracurricular activities, and then drive them to excel and advance in our society by playing by its rules, and then hope that an hour on Sunday couple of church events a month is going to offset all that other training. 
It can't. If you're not invested in helping your children see and understand who God is, to see and understand the world as He sees it, if that's not something that you as their parents are intentionally doing at home, you shouldn't be too surprised when your kids act and sound more like the world than you're really comfortable with. Because point two, the pull, the pull of the world is away from God and toward judgment. Forget that, and you will compromise, both for yourself and for those around you. But point three, there's more than judgment. Because remember, this account is not here to tell you first how to live. It's to tell you first who God is and how to connect with Him in order then to live well with Him in this world. That means this is not primarily a morality tale. Its primary point is not trying to teach you love the world, lose your life. That is there, but it's not the main point. Because the main character of this story is not a doomed social climber who picked the wrong ladder to climb. Main character is not Lot. The main character is God. And when you see that, you see something amazing. You see someone who will help you when you compromise with the world. You do see God judge, but you see him do something else here too. You see God being incredibly kind to Lot. God sent these two angels to destroy the cities, but only after they brought Lot out. I want you to see how persistent God is in making sure that happens. First, after the angels save Lot from the mob, they warn him, verse 12, of what they're about to do, and they urge him to leave. What is that? That's pure mercy. Lot has been incredibly foolish in picking who to hang out with, people in Sodom over God's people. And God is not giving him what he deserves. After that first warning, the next sentence, verse 15, starts with, as morning dawned, and you think, wait, <laughs> morning? It was night when the angels warned him. Why is he still there? Somehow, doing something, he's frittered away the rest of the night. He's still not ready to go. He just took God's mercy for granted. At which point, the angels tell him, up! Or as we might say, let's go, get moving! What is that? That's the second warning. Now, I don't know. If you were in Lot's place, <laughs> would you need to be told this? You were there the night before when the mob was trying to break down your door. Would you really need to be told again to leave? Apparently, Lot does. Let this amaze you. He gets the extra warning. God stoops when he doesn't have to to give this man the help that he needs. And there's no hint in this passage of God grumbling losing his temper, complaining. Look at God. See the heart that he's showing you. You can't fake this kind of goodness. Even then, verse 16 starts, but he lingered. You think, really? Lingered? <laughs> for what? What's he waiting for? He has got a, as clear a sign as he possibly could have from God. He has angels that God has sent to warn him, and he still hesitates. How can he be that clueless? He's ignored all of God's warnings, and if I was God, I'd have had enough at this point. Okay, Lot, <laughs> you really don't want to leave? Fine. You die too. 
you have worked so hard to identify with these people in life, you might as well go all the way. And God does not think that. The angels grab Lot, his wife, and his daughters, and they force them to leave the city. Why? Verse 16, because the Lord was merciful to them. Do you see God's heart? He's not ready to quit on a man who quit on himself a long time ago. God's mercy takes on a whole new depth of meaning here. And I start to think, man, if God doesn't quit on a guy like Lot, maybe I can believe he won't quit on me either. God's not done showing you his heart, though. The angels bring this family outside Sodom and tell them, verse 17, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. That's about as clear as you can make it. Lot starts the next sentence, verse 18. Oh no, my lords. And you think, here's a guy who really just doesn't get it. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've shown me great kindness in saving my life. No kidding. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Even as Lot is ordered to run for his life, he's still trying to drag his feet. He's trying to make bargains. The sovereign Lord of the universe has decided to wipe out a small spot on a wayward planet that disgusts him, and Lot thinks he can negotiate. Hey, God, so far I've screwed up everything I've done in my life. None of it has panned out. But I have this new idea that I know is way better than yours. Let God's response blow you away. Verse 21, behold, I grant you this favor also. This is not a story about a doomed social climber. It's a rich story of a wonderful God. Not only does he put up with stubborn people, he bends low and he cares for them, even when they've done the abs their absolute best to ruin their lives. There are consequences for what Lot's done, but there is so much more here. There's a God who doesn't mock him, doesn't laugh, doesn't use Lot's failings to make himself feel bigger. God's faithfulness is shot through with compassion. Why does God tell you stories like this? He tells you stories about people who don't see what is best for themselves or their families, people like you and me. And in telling you about them, he tells you way more about himself. People make life hard on God. They doubt Him, they ignore Him, they disobey, they compromise, they put themselves, they put their families in jeopardy. And God responds by using His power and His might on their behalf. He's kind to the undeserving. And yet when I come to the end of this chapter, there's still a question that hangs out there for me. How do I know that he'll be kind to me? Yes, he rescued Lot, but how do I know he'll rescue me? You go back to verse 29. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Chapter 19 tells you that there is judgment, but it's judgment that is understood within the context of chapter 18. 
In chapter 18, Abraham intercedes for the wicked. He sees everything that Sodom and Gomorrah deserve, everything that warrants judgment. And he cries for mercy anyway. And God remembers Abraham. God remembers who Lot is related to. And he pardons Lot on the basis of a connection with his righteous uncle who intercedes for wicked people. You have a far, far better mediator than that. One who you are now connected to. One who calls you brother, sister, welcomes you into the family of God. You have a mediator who didn't stay outside the city, but he entered into your world. He came and he lived here where you live. Tempted in every way you are, that's what Scripture tells us. He faced all the temptations to compromise that you and I do, to pull his lifeline away from God. And Jesus never deviated once, never compromised once. He's the one person who could have escaped God's judgment, who should never have had to face it. He should have left the city before the fire fell on it, should have left you and me to face the judgment that we deserve, and he didn't. Why? Because he obeyed God even in this. He refused to separate himself from God. God called him to obey by laying his life down for his friends, for, to make atonement for us, and Jesus did that so that he could take you and me by the hand and lead us out of the destruction before it happens. How do you know that he did that for you? Because he made a promise, John 6, 37, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up for the last day. It's that simple. How do you know that he will be kind to you like this and not leave you to what you deserve? Come to him. Come to him and he promises that he won't cast you out. He won't lose you. He won't let go of your hand until he's raised you up with him. Lord Jesus, open our eyes and open our hearts to see what is really true that you are a God who judges righteously, deservedly, but that you are a God whose mercy goes even further and that you are willing to face your own judgment for us to rescue us. Lord, let that stir us to love you back with, with, with just a, a fraction of the love that you have for us. Move that in us, Lord, so that even now as we sing to you, Lord, that we do that with glad and grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.